This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. And today I have the pleasure of talking to L. Annette Binder about a new novel of hers called The Vanishing Sky. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. <laughs> you did. <laughs> and you go, by, I, you go by Annette, I take it, and that the L is not used. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> So thank you for taking some time to talk about this book. I I was really, you know, as I sort of, I, I read the book um, slowly and carefully, partly because it's a, a book that starts off slowly and carefully portrays a situation. It takes place in Germany. I take it it's very close to the end of the war. You have the, you know, the the people who live in Germany are, uh, thinking about the Russians a lot and, um, you know, the, and the Americans too, and feeling that the end is coming close to them. And as I understand it, this is based on somewhat your own family's experience. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about just where, you know, your background, um, so that, um, we can understand that. Oh, sure. Um, I was born in Germany. Both my parents are German, and um, I came to the United States when I was about five and a half. Uh, my father, who was born in 1930, never spoke to me at all about his childhood in Germany. Um, he died when I was 16, and I did not have the sense at that time to ask him anything about his life. And long after he passed away, uh, I had just started writing this novel, and I came across a photo album of childhood photos from his life, and the final photo in the album showed him in his Hitler Youth uniform uh, in 1944, so he would have been 13 or 14 at that point. And when I found that photograph, uh, I was surprised, even though I knew on an intellectual level that he was probably in the Hitler Youth, uh, because it was mandatory for boys at that point. Um, or at least for most boys, it is still jarring to see him in the uniform. And at that point, I went to my mother and started talking to her and asking her questions. And so much of what she told me uh, in one form or another ended up uh, in the in the novel. Mm. And in this in the story, there it really centers on this one family, um, which is Etta, the the mother, Huber is their last name, uh, the father, Joseph, then the two boys, Max and George. Um, Max being the elder, so if there was one of these children that you were modeling on, it would have been your father as the younger of the two. That's right. That's right. My father had an older brother. Uh, the age difference was about uh, the difference between um, the, two, the two boys in the Hoover family. Um, my father's brother served on the Eastern Front, uh, my father was in the Hitler Youth, and as I found out from my mother, he ran away from his post near the end of the war. He really struggled with his own father's expectations. Uh, unlike his older brother, my father really rebelled. And so that boy, that rebellious boy who, who struggled with what was expected of him, really stayed with me and became the inspiration for the younger son in the Huber family. Well, you portrayed these characters, I mean, in a way that I consider to be really sensitive and personal. And it makes sense because now I understand you're kind of imagining this, uh, these people that, in a way, you didn't ever really get to know. 
Exactly. Um, yeah, it's one of my, my big regrets is that I didn't ask my father. And he might not have told me anyway, because he was a very quiet person. Uh, he loved nothing more than just to sit at the kitchen table and read, uh, to go fishing. Just He, he enjoyed his silences. Um, there's a German word, Gemütlichkeit, which means sort of a contented tranquility. And that pretty much describes my, my house growing up. It was very Gemütlich. I was an only child. Um, we sort of read a lot. We just enjoyed our silence. Um, but the downside of that is there was a whole side to my father uh, that I never knew and that now is inaccessible to me. Um, you know, everything Everything that I learned about him, I learned from my mother and from his younger sister, and they were both babies at the end of the war. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, it's all lost at a certain level. Well, the people, I mean, I think that it's really, um, what's interesting, well, I guess it's sort of funny. The people that I thought about in terms of responsiveness to the situation was were the adults as in first I thought about the adults a lot. I mean, I think I saw the younger um, characters, the two brothers seemed, you know, because you have less agency when you're, when you're 13 or 14 years old, you are thrust into this situation where you have no choice about what you're going to do or less choice anyway. And it seemed like the older brother did what was expected of him uh, but you, what you wonder about are the parents, because they're the ones who were adults when Hitler came to power, when Germany became what it was in that 15-year period um, of the pre-war and then the war. And they, they're the ones you always think about. You know, the um, uh, I don't want to say in terms of blame, but in terms of uh, trying to understand how a society falls into that place. Oh, absolutely. And now you did not know these would be your grandparents' generation, so you didn't you didn't get to know them. I did not know either of my grandfathers. Um, they both passed away um, almost immediately after the war, or within a few years. Um, my grandmothers, I both I, I knew both of them. Uh, my father's mother, in particular, um, it's my understanding from just everything I've heard about her, that she uh, really had trouble with the fact that my parents immigrated to the United States and um, sort of saw it as a, as a personal betrayal, um, you know, given that the American soldiers were the ones who went through her region of Germany. I think she never was, was quite able to overcome that. Uh, but I do not know what level of complicity they had. Uh, my grandfather, her husband, was the head school teacher of a small town and was the mayor of that small town for at least a while. And so, you know, I do, I do wonder about it. I have, I have questions about it, but I don't really have any, any answers. Have you? Have you? I mean, since you, well, you have. I, obviously, you must have relatives in Germany. Have do you ever go back and visit? We would go back almost every year when I was a kid to visit my grandmothers. And then when they passed away, um, my family stopped visiting. My father in particular had issues with going back. I think he, and I think part of it is probably his childhood and sort of what the things that he saw um, as a child in Germany. He, he did not really want to go back to visit for me. 
very much. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, was was really willing to, to go back and, and visit family. At this point, I have just an aunt left uh, in Germany and some cousins, some of whom I haven't seen since I was a baby. Mm. And the, I mean, obviously this, I'm not, I think it, I'm not trying to relate your exact circumstance to the story. I think to go back to the book, um, you know, I think that what you've, I mean, I think what you've done is imagined this place where people that you can relate to um, are going through a terrible event. In other words, I think the book is really not about the politics or doesn't try to explain why things happened. It just tries to portray what happens to people as individuals caught in these giant uh, circumstances. So you're, it's not a political novel in any way. Um, you know, it's much more um, I mean, it has elements of politics in it. I guess nothing doesn't, but it just feels like the um, the uh, people are just trying to figure out how to be themselves in a situation which is almost impossible for them. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's a deeply personal book in that way, and it really started with the characters uh, before before anything else. That the characters lived with me for for weeks and weeks and months and months before I even began to write. Um, and so it really is a story of a family uh, struggling, uh, the mother in particular struggling to hold everything together uh, just when things are starting to fall apart. Right. And you do, I mean, you do talk about the kind of day-to-day struggle, the suffering, you know, the lack of food, the lack of fresh, you know, of being able to buy anything. At that point, they were pretty much... Um, you know, at the end of the war, things were really bad. Just on a day-to-day living basis, they didn't have very much. And they were finally realizing, I think you do show this pretty well, that they were realizing what was the, the um, I want to say, the the kind of impact, the, the result of what they had started out to do uh, that, that, was, that did not succeed. Um, Exactly. Now, you also, there's a little bit of mention, more or less at the beginning of the book, about um, the Jews in the town, you know, not being there any longer. And is your sense that, um, as, you know, kind of as you've written it, that the, the people in the community just could not uh, face what that had, be, what that meant? Um, you know, they just didn't really um, own up to it in their day-to-day thinking or emotional lives. You know, that's, that's right. It, it was a really uh, interesting thing for me to explore. What is it like if your mind can rationalize something away, but your heart knows the truth? Um, there's a certain level of denial, and of course, different people will have varying uh, levels of denial or varying levels of awareness in the first place. But, you know, there's a tendency to want to flatten an entire group of people, say, you know, the entire German population into people who rapidly supported the regime, the sort of evil regime with its murderous goals. Um, and then there were a few really super heroic people who risked their lives 
um, on the other end of the spectrum. But it's people in the middle that I was really fascinated by. What is it like to know something or to suspect something and to sort of wish it away because what is the alternative? Uh, you know, if you, if you try to resist, uh, you're likely to be killed yourself. Your family will pay tremendous consequences. So what is it like to live under a regime like that and be forced to, to sort of grapple with your knowledge and your failure to act? And so that afterwards, when, I, when I'd already written the book in first draft form and I was looking at it, I sort of realized, well, that's what I've done is I've looked at the people in the middle right, and lived with them sort of in intimate terms uh, over the course of those six months near the end of the war. And there is that knowledge. Um, you know, there are moments where the mother in particular, Edha, uh, really, she remembers, she remembers and then she almost sort of wills it away. Um, so, you know, and at that point, the, the Jewish population in those towns and in the city of Ripsburg, which is where much of the action also unfolds, um, the last significant roundup of the Jewish population was already a year and a half to two years before. Um, you know, and so memories are receding and willed away. Uh, but even even then, even at the end of the war, people with mental illness were still being rounded up. Um, and that's something that comes to the fore as the story unfolds, of course, um, because one of the sons um, is suffering from a mental breakdown, and that's one of the one of the reasons that Edda is struggling to hide him from the authorities. Um, so, you know, there's I, I sort of wanted to unflatten things. I wanted to look at individuals experiencing this regime um, who weren't. Oscar Schindler, who weren't these heroes risking everything, but they also weren't waving banners. Right. Well, I think actually, what I when I read this, I I was thinking about where we are today. I think it's almost unavoidable. There's been a, you know, we have a tendency, as you said, to flatten, to think in terms of it's uh, ones, zeros, and ones. Uh, you know, uh, um, that it's either or. Either you were a Nazi or you were against the Nazis, um, and there that doesn't really capture the nuance of a culture, of a political circumstance. Well, we are in our own political circumstance, and I am worried about the future of American democracy, and I'm worried about how similar it is today to Germany in the early 1930s, even though we are not the same country, we don't have the same uh, history or background or people, but we still live in a mass culture uh, that has similarities. And um, I couldn't help thinking about how, I think there, I, I forget who said this, I just reread it, it just came up again, but that in Germany, 30% of the population supported Hitler and 30% didn't, uh, but he came to power because the other 30% didn't do anything. They acquiesced. Mm -hmm. uh, that's your mm -hmm. that, that's your middle. Whether those numbers are accurate or not, I think it's more symbolic language. <laughs> you know that there. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but he had a very uh, strong, but not uh, majority base when he came to power in 1933. And in our situation today, I think it's difficult not to think about that because 
Um, we have a, min a relatively uh, a minority that wants to do things differently than the rest of the society does. But unless this, unless it's 60, 40, uh, you know, you could imagine, um, the minority actually taking power. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I think, you know, I mean, I wrote this, I wrote this book. It took eight years to write the first draft. <laughs> I started it when I was still in my early thirties. It was the first piece of fiction I wrote. So I wrote it what feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but as I revised it, uh, just, you know, three years ago, four years ago, I sort of started going back to it. Um, I, you know, I, the, the feel of the world had changed. And at this point where we are now, I think it's hard not to feel besieged for a whole variety of reasons. And so I think the sort of focus on family and trying to do the right thing, but also being in denial about what's happening, um, in all likelihood resonates much more now than it did when I first wrote it. Oh, I think it does. I think it causes, even though this is my orientation, so I know I'm bringing something of myself uh, to the book when I say this, that it makes you think about what would you do in the same kind of circumstance. To be honest with ourselves, we have to recognize that we probably, most of us are not heroes. Most of us mm -hmm. are regular people who have to contend with, you know, normal fear and normal concerns. And, you know, when things are really bad politically, you go back to, you, you still have to go to work. Um, you know, you have to feed your family. These are the things that make it difficult to um, say, well, why didn't they all rise up to oppose Hitler? Exactly. Exactly. And in some ways, those are the interesting moral questions for me. Um, I think, you know, they, they resonate over time. Uh, the World War II Germany is an extreme example of something that comes up again and again in life. Yes, I agree. So it's interesting. Don't, do you feel that the, your novel has that uh, interesting connection uh, between the past and the present and possibly the future. Did you, I mean, obviously you may, you may not have thought of that when you wrote it, but do you feel it now? I think, I think I do feel it now. I mean, when I wrote it, I was so immersed in the characters uh, that I really was in a bubble uh, for years as, as I wrote. And that started again when I started revising it. It sat in a drawer for eight years and then I went back to it and, and started revising it and I put myself in that bubble again. But I think anytime you you are showing families and individuals struggling against um, just extreme adversity, whether it be a totalitarian regime or internal struggles and you and you're true to the conflicts that arise because of that is going to resonate. And now that we live in a time right now, unfortunately, of, of extreme conflict and, and difficulty, um, you know, I think it, it does resonate in a way that wouldn't have been predictable to me when I was in the bubble. Right. Well, I wouldn't have thought it when I saw that when the novel landed on my desk and I was thinking about reading it, I, I wasn't thinking about that um, either. Um, now you said that you, you wrote this years ago, so that means you set it aside and you started writing short fiction. Um, That's right. and cause I see, I have not read your earlier book, um, or your, you know, your short stories, but, um, 
what caused you to set aside the novel uh, when you after you'd written it and uh, turn to fiction, uh, other uh, t- turn to short story fiction uh, instead of continuing to revise the novel? You know, I had the first draft. It took eight years, as I said, to write. And then I just didn't know where to go with it. I I felt that it wasn't really ready yet. I had some agents express interest in it, um, but also tell me I don't know about having a book with Germans portrayed like this. Um, you know, this would have been probably 12 years ago, 2008 or so, um, when, when I got those comments. And I thought, hmm. I have more stories in me. I'm going to set this aside for now. And I started writing short fiction and fell in love with short stories, uh, wrote short stories sort of frantically, just enjoying it, and ended up getting a collection out in 2012. Started another novel based on one of the short stories, which I finished the first draft of. And then the characters just started tickling. You know, I just felt them. I felt that it wasn't done and that I needed to go back to this first novel. And the minute I went back to it, my agent said, you, you need to finish this novel. Um, this this novel is, is the one to focus on right now. And the minute I went back to it, it was as if I'd never left. The characters were just there waiting for me. Uh, it felt so familiar to me and they felt so familiar to me that I just spent a few more years revising it and then we got it out there. Mm. Well, the, uh, now that it is, it's, it's out there, it was completed a while ago, obviously, are you still writing short fiction or are you now going back to that other novel? Other novel. It's a very strange thing. I, I for one, cannot go back and forth very easily between the long form and the short form. Um, it took me a while after finishing my story collection to be able to get back into the rhythm of working on the novel that's based on one of those stories. Uh, for me, it's just a, it's almost like a totally different musical <laughs> uh, genre. And so if you're used to the beats of a short story, then having the patience uh, and the sort of long view uh, to write a novel, it's, 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 it's a different thing. And I found it very challenging. Uh, so once I got back into the swing of that, I haven't wanted to risk it by writing any more short stories right now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, it also, if you're working on a novel, uh, you know, and those characters do, and the story kind of is the focus, uh, unless you need to get away from them for a while, it's probably better to, you know, to stay with them. Absolutely. Even on days where I don't get any writing done because I know it's going to be crazy for other reasons, I think about those characters and I spend my time with them. Um, If I'm in the waiting room somewhere or just driving, those characters are with me. And so I feel that the next day when I am ready to go back to the keyboard, they've been with me all this time and I haven't lost anything. If I spend too much time away from them, I risk losing the thread entirely. So what was it about that one particular short story, though, that made you feel that those characters needed a a longer, a bigger story arc? They needed another, you know, the, the longer form in order to be fully expressed. I wanted to solve the mystery of that short story. It's a short story uh, in which a little boy goes for the first three years of his life without saying a word. And then when he finally does begin to speak, he speaks only in ancient Greek. Mm. And 
I wanted to, I was a classics major, so it taps into something that's near and dear to me. I love my Greek and Latin, but I wanted to solve the mystery of what was going on with that little boy and his, you know, his parents and all their efforts to uh, bring him out uh, into their world. Uh, and so I wrote the novel. I have a first draft, but it needs quite a bit of work still. Um, but I wrote the novel to solve that mystery for myself to find out. Oh, that's great. Well, with ancient Greek, do you um, do you feel that when you have characters in your book speaking ancient Greek, that you need to um, give a gloss for pronunciation to uh, the reader? I haven't in this in this draft. Um, it's it's written in close third person, which is probably the POV that's most near and dear to me. <laughs> and so, because the mother doesn't know what anything means and neither does the father although he starts studying ancient greek uh, to figure it out um you know i i leave a lot of it untranslated um but then other people come in and do explain to the parents what what the boy is right. saying um but i don't i don't have any pronunciation glosses right now i may i may need to add those uh, on revision well it might might be good for an audio book <laughs> Yeah, um, but, that's for sure. But is is ancient Greek one a language that we are certain of? We we really are uncertain of the pronunciation. You know, there was a tonality. Uh, ancient Greek, as I understand it, from you know from the classes I took all those years ago, ancient Greek was a tonal language, and um, the tones have been lost. And so I think there's a certain element of guesswork as to what those tones might have sounded like in practice. Um, they're able to figure out other aspects of the pronunciation pretty well from some of the poetry and making the meter work, you know, that they can figure out whether something like a digamma might have been at the beginning of a word. I don't know. But I think, you know, they have a, they have a decent sense of what it sounded like, except for the tone. Right. Now, I remember studying Latin and there is the sense that we, you know, we may not really fully understand how Latin was pronounced uh, in its, you know, earlier stage. Even though it's still got people who speak Latin in church, that may not necessarily be correct. But I've never, you know, I thought Greek might be more difficult. Yeah, I, you know, I think I would give, I would give the universe to be able to travel back in time and just spend a day in ancient Greece with an invisibility cloak. And a day in Rome, yeah. you know, Imperial Rome, just to see and hear and sort of feel what it was like, you know. But yeah, yeah at a certain level, you have to, that's where the imagination comes in. You do all your research and then there's that leap, you know. Yeah. And that's true even of the world 75 years ago with this novel. Um, you, you research, you research, you talk to people, and then you just take the jump. Right. Well, you, because it, anything other than the moment is actually... Um, much more complex and experienced by many different people. So there is no uh, certainty of any reality. I think that's the, you know, in one way, the beauty of imagination as we think about the past or if we think about the future, um, essentially none of it is real. It's all made up. Um, you get to You get to make it what you want it to be. And that's one of the great joys of writing fiction. You know, I mean, I sort of compare it to Spider-Man. You know, you're sort of swinging from building to building and you don't know exactly which building you're going to attach your web to. Uh, So there's that moment where you're sort of swinging through the air and you're looking for the next place to attach. And it's terrifying and exhilarating all at once, you know, Uh, especially when you're writing first draft uh, where you're looking at that blank screen 
day after day and, and knowing that your characters are going to have to lead you through what happens. Uh, but it's, it's a joyful feeling too. Well, of course, when you land it, when you land and you hold on, it is when you land and you fall, they may be not so joyful. <laughs> you know, that's true. But I've learned that even when you fall, there's usually something there. You can, you can go back. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't get as anxious anymore about, wow, this whole thing is just a failure. I, I need to start something new. I feel like there's something there and I have to make it work. And if, if there's something that wasn't right, if I made a decision along the way or if I was led astray along the way, I need to unravel it back to that place and then do the hard work of starting from there. Uh, but it's usually not lost. Well, it's one of the things that I've always been amazed by writers who write fiction or who write novels because um, there's so much rewriting and so much revision involved and to be able to keep that commitment for that amount of time has always struck me as an incredible feat. Well, revision, strangely, is actually my favorite part uh, because I'm not looking at the empty screen anymore. That cursor blinking on an empty page is sometimes a little scary. You know, uh, it's like jumping out of a plane or something. But once you have a manuscript, and all you have to do is go through it. I say all you do <laughs> somewhat uh, facetiously, but you know, all you really have to do is go through and find the weak spots and fix them and cut things or move things. That's, that's much more doable. I can do that for eight hours a day. Writing on the blank screen, if I get two hours in, then I know I'm tapped out. Anything else I try to do after that is just going to end up in the, in the bin the next day. So. I think revising is one of the great joys because it gives you a chance to to fix things the way you want them um, and avoid embarrassing yourself. <laughs> well, I love your I love your um, comparison of writing a novel to being Spider Man because it does communicate that kind of uh, joy of um, launching out into space, not knowing how you're going to land. Um, but I, I just, I admire the ability to keep on going. I think that for most people who have, you know, I've written, I write, but I've never been able to write anything longer than probably 30 pages. And I don't think I ever will. Um, and I just, I admire people who can do it. So <laughs> congratulations <laughs> on, on doing it once and do, and you, as I can tell, you'll do it again. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> but I want to thank you for taking some time to talk today. I really like this book a lot. I don't think I said that early on. Um, in a lot of ways, I wasn't expecting to like it. I think, you know, I, uh, I didn't come to it with any expectations, but, um, I just, I wasn't sure just because of what it was about. Um, but I, I thought this is a really, really amazing book and I want to thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you, dude. I really appreciate that. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Annette Binder about her novel, The Vanishing Sky. Thank you so much. <laughs>